be seated. Sharon spoke about the divisions and the different opinions. And um, in the Christian church, um, perhaps nothing has been more hotly debated than the doctrine of predestination. It's been called the damnable doctrine of predestination. Others call it the sweetest truth in all of God's word. Whole books have been written to prove it's not true. Other books say if God is God, then it must be true. But it raises huge questions. If predestination is true, what happens to free will? Are we just puppets on a string doing what God has ordained in eternity past? Does God predestine people to go to heaven? What do you think? Does, if so, does God predestine people to go to hell? Why bother with evangelism since whoever's going to be saved will be saved anyhow? For that matter, how can God hold us accountable if we're only doing what God has predestined us to do? So, predestination, what does it mean? It has to do with the prefix pre, which means before, and destination, which means ultimate outcomes. If you take a package to FedEx, you don't say, just send it whatever you want to. They wouldn't know what to do with the package. You say your mailing address, right? The destination. And there's tracking devices let you know when it's arrived, but it's predetermined its final destination. Predestination then means God chooses those who will be saved and determines in advance the final destination, namely heaven. But that raises a question, doesn't it, about fairness. How many of you think that life is unfair? You can love somebody with all your heart, and that person you love can break your heart, can break up the relationship. You could say in a fair world that shouldn't happen, but in the world we live in, life isn't fair. You can make a huge contribution to a company. In a fair world, you should be compensated, rewarded. But it's possible they can let you go, and you're now unemployed. In a fair world, that wouldn't happen, but in our world, life seems unfair. You can really take good care of your car, getting all the required maintenance, and then the transmission goes out. In a fair world, that wouldn't happen, right? But in this world, it seems unfair. You can play a sport according to the rules. Let's say it's soccer. And uh, the other team is pulling at your jersey, right? And the referee seems to be making calls on their behalf. You can actually lose the game if you played according to the rules. In a fair world, that wouldn't happen. But in this world, life seems unfair. Jesus tells us a story in Matthew chapter 20. We're working our way to Romans 9, and the sermon's entitled, Is God Fair? But God doesn't dance around the difficult subjects. He takes them on directly. He tells it like it is. He um, speaks directly to the controversial topics. Doesn't necessarily give us the politically correct answer, but he gives us truthfully what it really is. So here's the story in Matthew chapter 20. You can look at it if you like. Matthew 20. It says, the kingdom of God is like a landowner who early in the morning, seeing he had an abundant harvest, went into the marketplace 
And there he invited people to work in his vineyard. And he agreed with them to pay them a denarius, a day's wage. Let's say in our terms, $100. So they make a contract and they go into the vineyard early in the morning to work. About 9 o'clock, the vineyard owner goes back to that marketplace to find more workers and says, fellas, do you want to work? And they said, sure. And he says, I'll pay you what is fair. And they go with him to the vineyard. About noon, he goes also back to the marketplace. You see, the vineyard owner is, represents God. And the workers represent us. And the vineyard represents the opportunities we have to serve God. So the vineyard owner goes back into the, to the marketplace at noon and hires more workers. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, because he wants more workers to work in that vineyard, he goes back and he hires more workers. Then at 5 o'clock, quitting time is 6. Typically, they work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. At 5 o'clock, knowing he wasn't getting much work out of these guys, he says, hey, what are you doing standing around? And they said, no one has hired us. Maybe they're the least desirable of all the workers. And the owner says, I'll hire you. He takes them to his vineyard, and they work. Well, at 6 o'clock, it's time to quit. And he tells the, for the foreman to pay these men their wages. And he begins with those who were hired last, those hired at 5 o'clock. You see, the owner, the vineyard owner, God, is very generous and very gracious. And he pays to these guys who were hired last a full denarius, $100. The principle is, in the kingdom, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So the last hired are the first paid. And they're given a full wage. And then he pays out the ones hired at 3, at noon, at 9. And he comes to those hired first. Now they think it's going to be a sweet payday. Man, you know, the guys that were hired last only worked an hour. They were given a full wage. Man, it's going to rain money on us. We are going to be rolling in the dough. We're going to become rich. And the foreman hands them a denarius. And they grumble. And they complain. And they say, it's not fair. It's not fair. We bore the burden of the heat of the day. And these Johnny-come-latelys, you know, just barely show up at work, and they get a full wage. And you've paid us only the denarius. God was not obligated to pay them anything. He would not be unfair in giving them what they agreed to. And then he says this word. He says, is it unlawful for me to do as I please with what is mine? What Jesus was trying to teach us is that God really does owe us nothing. That if we receive his mercy, it's something that is undeserved. So with that forward, let's look together now at Romans chapter 9. And we're going to pick it up where we left off last week with the questions that Paul asks in this incredible ninth chapter of Romans. And the questions are, has God failed to keep his promises? Question two, 
is God unfair to and how he dispenses his mercy? Question three, is God unjust, holding us accountable? Question four, is God's choice to some inconsistent with his goodness? And the last question is, how do we know the ones who are chosen and the ones not chosen? Look at verse number six, where it reads, it's not as though God's word has failed. The question here, the first question asked in this passage is, has God failed to keep his promises? Now, we know that from this passage that the nation of Israel was given tremendous advantages. The Messiah himself came out of Israel. But by and large, the nation was living in unbelief. They thought of Jesus being a prophet or a teacher. They didn't see him as the king, the Messiah. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, jealous of Jesus, collaborated with Rome to get rid of him. And every city Paul went into, he went first of all to the synagogue to preach the gospel to the Jews. But the Jews largely were unreceptive and sometimes hostile to him, running him out of time. So because of the national rejection of the Messiah, has God failed to keep his promises because of their rejection? Now, what he explains is that many living in Israel were banking on the fact that they were children of Abraham. They could go to Ancestry.com and find there a linkage to Abraham. And what Paul says is they are not necessarily children of God because they are children of Abraham. He argued that there, there are those that are born into Israel who are not born again. And secondly, Paul introduces the concept of divine sovereign election. He says before Ishmael or Isaac was born, God chose Isaac to be the son of promise. Even though Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham, God chose Isaac. Remember, when Abraham was asked by God to take his son, his only son, up to the land of Moriah, from God's perspective, Isaac was truly his only son born to Sarah. Was God right in choosing Jacob over Esau? Even though Esau was the firstborn, God being sovereign is sovereign to make choices. So God has not failed to keep his promises. Question number two, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Is God unfair then and how he dispenses mercy? Look at verse 14 with me, chapter 9. It says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God unfair? That's the question posed by the Apostle Paul. And it seems as if there's an objector who's raising the issue concerning God's election that God must be unfair. Did God do something wrong when he chose Isaac? Isaac was not the firstborn son. Ishmael was the firstborn child. And God said about Ishmael that he would be a wild donkey of a man, always at enmity with his brothers. We look at the strife, the division in the Middle East. We look at what's happened with Israel and Palestine. Draw, bombs have been dropped. Missiles have been fired. Lives have been lost because of a historic enmity between the sons of Isaac 
namely Israel, and the sons of Ishmael, namely Palestine. Is it possible for God to be unjust? Did God do something wrong when he chose Jacob and did not choose Esau? Is God unjust? And the answer is meganoite, the strongest negation, not at all, no, 1,000 times no. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what is mercy? Mercy is God's undeserved favor. It is God not giving us what we deserve. It is receiving something we don't deserve. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. To, to show mercy, then, is to relieve someone's affliction. God doesn't owe anybody mercy. And you know this principle to be true. Let's say there's a very wealthy woman, and she has millions and millions of dollars to herself. She's loaded with money. And she decides to give 10 students a full scholarship to college. She guarantees that all of their expenses will be paid. Now, this wealthy person could potentially help more than 10 students. There's literally thousands of equally worthy recipients. And I'm sure if there's an application process, each one of the students would have made the case that they're the one deserving to receive the scholarship. So she makes a choice out of the thousands of applicants, and she chooses 10. And she's under no particular obligation to help any of them. What she is doing is pure mercy. The point is that nobody is owed salvation. Nobody has a claim on God's mercy. And this quote is taken from Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. When Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he received the law, and he came down from the mountain, and he saw the people in revelry with the golden calf, and there was a plague, 3,000 were judged in that very moment. But God had mercy upon the nation. You see, thousands upon thousands of people God showed mercy to. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul's reasoning goes something like this. Are you saying that God owes you salvation? No, not, of course not. If he owes no one salvation, he is free to give it to whomever he chooses, to all or to some. In fact, God would have done no injustice by leaving us all to perish. John Stott says, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. Now, that may seem backward to us, but it is not. Paul is saying the question, is God fair, is misconceived because the basis in which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. So aren't you glad that God did not give you justice? You should be a little bit glad. Because if we all received justice, we all would have gotten judgment. But what God has shown in the cross is his mercy. God has shown us grace. Just like that one that was hired late in the day, God showed him his sovereign mercy, his grace, his compassion to be included. So verse 16 says, 
So God does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. God doesn't look down from heaven and say, this person worked harder, this person was more, severe, more sincere, this person had more potential, this person deserved it more than anybody else. No, the reason why anybody gets in is because of God's mercy. So first of all, Paul deals with the issue of Moses and the mercy shown to the nation. And then he turns in verse 17 to the issue of Pharaoh. Here we go, 17. By the way, when you take on this topic, you're kind of walking into the deep end of the pool. So we're taking on some topics that people don't normally talk about. So just hang with me as we got to walk, these, walk our ways through these things. Verse 17. I raised you up, God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the earth. He was a sovereign. He was using his power to oppress people. And God is not on the side of the oppressor. Where there is a oppression in our world, God does not stand with the oppressor. God stands with the oppressed. And so Pharaoh was confronted by Moses. And Moses said to him, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should let my, his people go? No. Pharaoh said no. He dug his heels in. He began to resist God's power. So God brought 10 plagues upon Egypt. God demonstrated his mighty power against the most powerful man on this earth, namely Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh made himself an enemy of God, and God crushed him. It's Pharaoh's hardness of heart. It was an opportunity for God to show his power over wickedness and his commitment to his people. Question number three, is God unjust in holding us accountable? Look at verse 18 and following. It says that God will show mercy to whom God will show mercy. He hardens those whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will. So Pharaoh had a role to play, the enemy of God's people. How can God bring judgment onto Pharaoh if he didn't have a choice? Do you follow? So you have God in heaven. You have Pharaoh on earth. Pharaoh is resisting God's will. He is an enemy of God, using his sovereign will to oppress people. Was Pharaoh responsible for his own actions? Who rejected who first? Did Pharaoh reject God or did God reject Pharaoh? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? That's the question. Well, during the first five plagues of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It only was that God hardened his heart after Pharaoh had hardened his heart. The point is that God is not to blame for Pharaoh's hard heart. C.S. Lewis said that hell is a door locked from the inside. And John Stott said, if anyone is saved, the credit is God's alone. If anyone is lost, the blame is all theirs. 
Notice how Paul begins to deal with this issue. He says in verse 20, For who resists his will? And who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You see, if God is sovereign, God can do whatever he pleases. <laughs> no one can resist the will of God. God is in control of all things. There was, there was a man, his name was Job. And Job is perhaps the best commentary on this verse. Because Job suffered many, many losses. He was healthy, and then he had boils all over his body. He had children, and his children were all swept away. He had servants and possessions. He had a wife, and his wife said, curse God and die. And then he had three counselors who were talking to him and basically saying that, Job, what you're experiencing in life is because you have sinned. You have not confessed your sin to God, and so Job is greatly suffering. You know that one of the things that unites us as human beings is pain and suffering. And Job was going through his season of pain and suffering. And some of you have suffered in vast ways this past week. And so Job wants to have this conversation with God. And God says, all right, Job, you want to argue with me, you want to ask me some questions. Before you ask me your questions, let me ask you a few questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when the morning stars sang together? Where were you, Job, when I flung the stars into space? Were you there? Can you tell me the secrets of the sea? Do you understand how the rain works? Do you understand how the lightning appears? Do you understand these things which are so simple to me? Job hung his head, and God goes on. He says, look at the stars. Can you order their courses? Can you make Pleiades shine in the springtime? Can you make Orion stride across the winter sky? Tell me, Job, can you run the universe? In other words, Job is asking questions of God of why has this happened? I was listening to a person who was standing before an oncologist, and he had very severe brain cancer. And he asked the oncologist, why do I have this brain cancer. And in a moment of humility, the oncologist said, I have no idea why you have brain cancer. There are questions that we ask for which there are no answers here on this side. And Job was asking God questions that could not be answered and not understood by Job. And what Job says, Lord, he hung his face in the dust. He says, I don't know what I was getting into. I'm not in my league. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I put my hand over my mouth. I have nothing left to say. What Job did was he worshiped God. Worship God who is sovereign over his life. You see, there comes a place in our life where we surrender to the sovereignty of God. I don't understand what is happening but I am trusting the God who understands all things. And some of you are at this very point this morning 
of having to trust God and his sovereign will with things you don't understand. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Have you ever looked into the mirror and said, God, why did you form me like this? Why did you make me like this? You see, what's happening when you talk like this is we are the clay talking to the potter. God, why did you make me so short? Why did you make me so tall? Why did you make me male? Why did you make me female? Why did you make me black? Why did you make me white? Doesn't God, being sovereign, have the right to take a lump of clay and make out of the clay vessels that he would deem fit? Isn't God sovereign? Doesn't, can't God do whatever he pleases? Yeah, he can. So go back with me now to Jeremiah chapter 18. We'll be back in Romans in a moment. Jeremiah chapter 18, where we're addressing the issue of sovereignty. Is God sovereign or is he not? So Jeremiah was a prophet. And he is told by God in Jeremiah 18 to go down to the potter's house. I cannot tell you how important a potter's house was. They used pottery, the clay pottery, to line the inside of their bricks, of their ovens. Clay tiles were put on their roofs. The pots that they used were made out of clay. The mugs that they drunk from were made from clay. The vessels that they ate from were made of clay. You, it's been said you can trace civilization through pot shards. You can trace where civilizations have been through their pots. So Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house. And there I'll give you a message. Now God can speak to his children anywhere. God can speak to you in your house. God can speak to you at someone else's house. God can speak to you at the potter's house. And so God says to Jeremiah, go on down to the potter's house and I will give you a message. And Jeremiah obeyed that instruction. And he went down to the house. Now, you've probably seen this happen, a pottery being made with an electric wheel. But in their day, there was a large circular stone that laid parallel to the ground. And it had an axle coming up out of the wheel and a smaller wheel on top. And the potter would control the speed of the wheel by moving it with his foot. He told the wheel when to start and when the wheel to stop. And the potter would find clay, and clay was very common. And he would apply water to the clay in order to sort of knead the clay, make it soft and pliable. So he says, go down to the potter's house, and there I'll give you a message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. Just as God, Jesus said, chose his Workers to be in the vineyard working. So God was seeing this potter working at his wheel. You see, the potter is God. And we are the clay. And the wheel is the circumstances of our life by which God shapes our character. You see, there's circumstances that have come into your life right now that have been shaping who you are. 
God is forming you. God is designing you. And so the pot he was shaping that day was marred in his hands. So what was happening was the pot he was working on had a flaw. It had a mar. He saw the potter was working at the potter's wheel, but there was a mar in that clay, some impurity. Perhaps something like a stone was in the clay or a bubble was in the clay. So what the potter did was he took the clay off the potter's wheel and he began to knead that clay, that clay again, reshaping it, reforming it. You see, it's possible to resist the potter's hand. God is the potter and we are the clay and God is forming us, you see. As God was forming this pot, the potter was forming the pot. You see, this is my coffee cup. In someone's potter's shop, they form this cup. And it's beautiful. They put it into a kiln and they baked it with a new color on it so that this cup could be useful. What this potter had in his hands was marred clay. You see, the potter could see the potential of the clay. God can see the potential of that ordinary clay. He can take that clay and make something beautiful with that clay. He can make a vase that you can put at the entrance to your house that those coming in may adorn the beauty of that clay, that piece. And God can make clay into something very ordinary, very common, like a coffee mug. So what happens is he says here, the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does? We are in the hands of God. God has his hands on the clay and God is shaping and forming his people. God uses circumstances in our life to shape us. And the circumstances you find yourself in this very hour, God is shaping you. So let's go back to our text. He says in verse 22, 21, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Doesn't the potter have the right to take that lump of clay and do something awesome, like make something noble, like a vase with that lump of clay? And doesn't the potter have the right to take that clay and make something ignoble, uncommon? Literally, what he's talking about here is the ignoble use of a pot to be used for refuse, human excrement. He's saying that some pots you just don't want to be. And Pharaoh was that kind of pot that God made that was for an ignoble purpose. Look at verse 22. What if God showing choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. You see, Pharaoh made some choices 
And because of his choices, he would face destruction. And God was patient with him. But God showed him his wrath and his anger because he resisted his will. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Ultimately, if a person receives God's mercy, that person is prepared for God's glory. Look at verse 25. As he says to Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. The people who were not the people of God now become the people of God. The people that were outside of his love now are the people whom God loves. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. You will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out to Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. God has a remnant in every generation. God raises up a few who will be faithful to him. In all of Israel now, nine million people, there are only 30,000 professing Jews, Messianic Jews, those who have put their faith in Messiah. There's only a very small remnant that are there. And how many has God left here in the United States of America to be his remnant, to be a people that are faithful to a faithful God, a people who will bring the light into the dark places, the people who bring the salt into a decaying culture, the people that will speak a word of clarity and truth to a world that is so full of lies. You see, God has a remnant in every generation, and I want to be part of that remnant. And then he says, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would become like Sodom, we would become like Gomorrah, God would have brought destruction upon us unless the Lord had shown us his mercy. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, the righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the, stump, the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It is like this, brothers and sisters. It is as if we all are in the wilderness and there is a stone, a large stone. And some who are blinded, who can't see, some who are deaf, who can't hear, they stumble over this stone. But there's some who come to rest upon the stone. There's some who come to believe that he is the cornerstone. Some who come to believe that he is the foundation stone. Some who come to believe he's the rock that I will hold to. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that's the remnant that believes that he is the stone, the rock. And we build our life upon that rock. He is the solid foundation. You see, the Jews trying to justify themselves could never be justified. 
But the Gentiles, who were not necessarily looking for the Messiah, heard the gospel and believed, and they now are the remnant that God has raised up. Romans chapter 9. It's a story about God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign. So, we come to communion. And I just want to ask you a question. Was what happened to Jesus fair? Was that fair, what happened to Jesus? Many of us wrestle with the issue of fairness in life. I know a person who's not married and so wants to be married, very lonely. She's even commissioned me to find her a husband. Good luck with that. So I'm always looking over the single guys. But she says, it's just not fair. You know, others have a spouse. I just don't. I think about couples that have tried to get pregnant. They rejoice when other couples have, but they themselves can't. I think about so many have prepared for retirement and come up to that very day, and then their life is cut short. And people say, just not fair. So we wrestle with the issue of fairness. You know what I think? That life on this earth is equally unfair to us all. And what happened to Jesus was incredibly unfair. Here was the innocent one facing trial and false charges brought against him. And the only one around doing good and people collaborated against him, became jealous and envious of him and put him on a cross. And for six hours, Jesus hung on the cross in the darkness. And there he substituted himself for our sins so that when we celebrate communion, we remember all the unfairness that fell onto Jesus but yet, God was showing us his enormous love. He was showing us what true love is. He was sending his Savior to die for the sins we deserve to die for. And so when we celebrate communion, which we're going to do together, if you guys are up for this, we remember him whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, which was so unfair. And we remind ourselves that God will make all things right in the end. God will make all things new. So we're between this time of the cross and the time of the second coming when we suffer a lot of unfairnesses in this life. A lot of things seem so unfair to us. And we identify with Jesus, the Lamb of God. The unfairness was given to him also, but yet he was giving to us salvation. Have you received that precious gift of salvation? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone? Do you believe that you're a sinner who deserves to be punished and Jesus has taken that punishment for you? If so, let's celebrate this bread and cup. We have some stations around the room. We'd like you to go and get the elements. We're going to have you come back and we're going to partake together. But before we do, let me offer a prayer. Father, this is a weighty subject that we've been addressing this morning. Thank you for your help. Thank you for the Holy Spirit 
thank you that you give understanding to things to us that are hard to understand. We really can't understand completely how we choose and you choose, but you chose before us and then we choose. And maybe somebody here is in this midst of making a choice of whether they want to follow you or not, whether they believe that you're the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the remission of our sins, that we could be forgiven, we could have eternal life, we could become part of this remnant. So God, as we just bow before you and quiet our own hearts, we worship and we praise you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us, all that he is. We thank you, Lord, that you have made provisions for us, that there's forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And before we partake, if there's a question in our hearts, we just say, Lord, I'm trusting in you. I'm putting my faith in you. I'm believing you, Jesus, to be Lord. I'm making confession with my lips. I'm believing my heart that you've been raised from the dead. I believe that you are God. So as we partake, Lord, would you just make this a sweet time of remembrance? Could we re recall your goodness to us, the sacrifice you bore? Could we enter into a beautiful time of worship and praise as we receive now these elements? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are the ransomed people of God. We are the redeemed the one who had been bought out of slavery at a great price. Even before the foundation of the world, God chose the Lamb of God who would go to that cross to show us the depth of his love. How much does God love us? He loves us this much. He loves us enough to go to a cross. That's a deep, deep love. By this we know what real love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Just a moment, we're going to say these words. <clears throat> this bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. And after we break bread together, we'll say this cup which we drink is the communion of the blood of Christ. We remind ourselves of the wounded body of Jesus. Piercings through his hands, through his feet, a spear through his side crown put upon his head, his body that was wounded and scarred and marred in order that we might become whole, and his blood that was shed to remind us of his great forgiveness for our sins. So church, can we say these words together as we look over the bread? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Would you partake? cup which we drink is the communion of the blood of Christ. I encourage you to dwell much upon the parable that Jesus taught about workers in the vineyard. That that's who you are. That God has chosen you. That God has shown his grace to you. That God's invited you to be part of his work, his vineyard work we get a chance to use our gifts, our opportunities to serve him. Imagine a church, just imagine a church where every person is energized in that church to serve. And the question of a servant is, 
how can I serve? And the second question is, what else can I do to serve? Imagine Aaron, you know, working with children, and people came up to her after the service and said, how can I serve? Or imagine Zeke looking for landscaping. People came up to him and said, hey, Zeke, what can I do? How can I serve? We're actively looking for opportunities to put our hands to work, to be involved in God's great kingdom, his vineyard, because we've been static long enough, church. It is time to get back and be the church. Time to rise again. Time to be the church. You know, when Jesus was here, he was the visible presence of God. And now Jesus is in heaven. So who gets to be the visible presence of God? The church. We get to be the church, the remnant, a rise church. It's time for us to get back to work. We've been home way too long. We've been at our couches far too long. It's time to get off the couch and get back to work. Because we are the church. We are the church. And there's work that God has for us to do. There's people to be reached. There's service to be rendered. We need to be the church. We'll be back next week in Romans chapter 10. We'll see you then.